This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this anniversary episode include... Lightning Round. Lightning Round. And more... Lightning Round. Ken, what comes between Once Upon a Time and Happily Ever After? Every dramatic, heartbreaking, and amazing twist and turn of every fairy tale ever told, that's what. Exactly! That's why our friends over at Atlas Games made the storytelling card game Once Upon a Time. Players create an exciting story together using the card elements from fairy tales. It encourages creativity, decision-making, and cooperation. This classic design by James Wallace and Andrew Rilston has been called one of the top storytelling games of all time. Some might even say the greatest storytelling game of all time. Once Upon a Time is about princesses overcoming danger, foxes dueling pirates, kings searching for lost crowns, and every other fairy tale plot players can imagine. Players tell their own fairy tale using elements on the cards and try to steer the conclusion toward their secret ending. Themes can be all-ages friendly or more mature, depending on the players at the table. Go over to atlas-games.com by May 31st and use coupon code ONCE2023 to get a free expansion when you purchase any three Once Upon a Time titles. So, Ken, as is frequently the case, I blatantly lied to our listeners at the end of last week's show, because I said next week we'll be back with more uh, science fiction cinema essentials and gaming hat and all the sorts of similar stuff we usually do. But I was cruelly misleading everyone because, Ken, what episode are we recording even as we speak? We are recording, Robin, episode 550, which not only ends in a zero, excitement enough, but also in a 50. Exactly. And that means that it's a milestone. It's an anniversary or quasi-numerical anniversary episode. And as all longtime listeners know, and as new listeners will soon thrill to find out, that means it's time for Lightning Round! And of course, we cannot do Lightning Round without the assistance of Lightning Round questions from our beloved Patreon backers, without whom this show would not exist. Usually we pluck from the ether the names of 10 beloved backers in order to profusely thank them every episode. Well, this time we're profusely thanking all of you because this show long ago would have gone to the great uh, podcast Valhalla were it not for your continued support. And so uh, thanks very much for uh, making sure that this continues to exist. And therefore... Let us begin with our lightning round questions. First is Trung Boy, who says, what is the most overrated food or food trend? If beer counts as food, and I believe it does, then IPAs are clearly the most overrated food or food trend. It flooded out. It was like an invasive species. You couldn't order a lager to save your life for about a decade there. It is beginning to tick back around as we have the hazy IPA, or as I like to call it, we're sorry we made IPAs in the first place, IPAs, but they remain overrated. Robin? Well, the, the, I certainly agree with you there, and there be a hereabouts in Ontario, they're being replaced by sours, which I'm only slightly less disinterested in than IPAs, <laughs> but the most overrated food or food trend is ramps. Ramps are incredibly overrated. People rhapsodize over them because they're hard to find. They're local. They grow out of the ground. They seem very exciting, but they don't taste like anything. They taste like like you took a bit of garlic and waved it near a piece of grass, and then you're eating the grass. Ramps is the answer. Lightning round! Kelly Fisher asks, How do I incentivize players to use limited use or consumable things rather than just hoarding them? Taxation, which I believe we're both heavily in favor of on this show in general. You make sure that things come up that make them at least halfway tempted to use their resources. So this is what, for example, the antagonist reaction scenes do in Gumshoe. When in doubt, scuff them up a little bit. Have a thing to do that makes them want to expend their resources. The point of any sort of resource emotionally is uh, if it's a choice of whether you get to use it or not. 
which is inherent in this question, is to make the player ask a question, how much do I really want this? And sometimes they still say, I want to have this more than I want life itself because I have the insula, the little part of the brain that makes me want to hold on to resources when I, once I get them. So really, it's just that, that tug of war in their heads as to whether they spend it or not. The cognitive dissonance, even if they don't spend it, is still good. But tax them. By taxation, Robin, of course, means market incentives. <laughs> Give them cool things that they know they can get if they use them. That cool thing might be their own survival or it might be a chance at a bigger prize. That's the way to trick the insula out of stuff is uh, offering a really great looking two birds in the bush or maybe even three birds in the bush. Who can say? Provide them opportunities to exert ownage, opportunities to really get into playing their character, opportunities to help out an NPC, opportunities to help out a fellow PC. Give them reasons to spend. Point and, them to a slot machine is what I'm hearing. And if you're not creating a universe that is worth spending resources on, then get better at creating your universe. That's what I say. Lightning round! Ginge says, The New York Times posted an article containing Maxar imagery of a war zone. What is it? And how is Delta Green scrambling to contain it? Maxar is a company that sells satellite imagery. It used to have a satellite, and apparently Delta Green knocked out their Worldview 4 previously the GOI-2 satellite, in 2019 because it stopped working then and deorbited in 2021 as a result of the terrifying loss in their stock market. Maxar was taken private this year, no doubt, by some March uh, syndicate's shadowy, majestic think tank. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I guess the next step, clearly Delta Green will spend a lot of uh, black budget defense money on an alternate to Maxar, which instead of presenting the accurate satellite imagery, uh, presents the nice, uh, safe, happy imagery that they want people to see. Lightning round! Dirk the Dice asks, if you travel from point to point across a fictional world, where would it be, Robin? So I would start out, of course, in the Kryptonian city of Kandor. This is classic Golden Age Kandor, of course, mm -hmm. uh, not the Kandor before Krypton starts to show all the signs of an environmental catastrophe, or, of course, definitely not before Brainiac shows up to st stuff it in a bottle, like, say, two, three hundred years before that. So I would start my journey in my floating condominium in the exclusive neighborhood of Kandor that I live in, and then I'd head on down by floating elevator to, uh, let's say I'd probably start off with, uh, uh, you know, get some Krypton cappuccino at the cafe. Then I would uh, head on over to the lecture hall for some erudition. Then I'd head, you know, down the way on the, on the floating sidewalk. I'd head on over to the, uh, to the theater where there'd be one of the great tragedies by Sofa Klee, that well-known Kryptonian uh, playwright. Then uh, perhaps we'd stroll along with Valerie down the uh, Grand Promenade to get some walking in, see some hydroponic sentient trees, have a talk with them. And then, you know, at the end of the day, when the sun starts to set, head on back home to my beautiful, luxurious apartment. Well, that would be lovely, Robin. I was, of course, start in the Chicago of the 23rd century and uh, take a uh, Starliner out probably to the Rigel colonies. I hear good things about them. They've got cool purple ruins. They've got an adventurous uh, social life and uh, maybe bop past the shore leave planet, see what, what I can think up, drop off at uh, Vulcan, say hi to everybody there at the Science Academy, let them chat. We'll, we'll talk back and forth. Maybe uh, cruise through uh, Tribble Town or uh, some equivalently cool planet full of cats. I don't know. And then, you know, back to Earth, back to Chicago to uh, fall asleep with the entire body of human knowledge available by saying computer. Right. And that's early 23rd, right? Yeah. No, right. Yes. Right. Because Brainiac put Chicago in a bottle uh, late 23rd. Right. No, this is this is Captain Kirk 23rd, the good 23rd. Lightning round. Jürgen Blomberg asks, best way to reward players for a good idea that you can't or don't want to allow them to succeed with because it would ruin the fun part of the plot? I think there's a couple of ways to do it. One, just praise them right out, GM to player, and say, that is a terrific idea, but it will ruin the fun part of the plot. Why don't you come up with something else? 
uh, that often, you know, treating people with respect turns out to pay some dividends sometimes. Failing that, that's what the good Lord put bennies or hero points or XP in the universe for. Just say, that's a good idea. Sorry, we can't do it, but here's some walking around money, kid. Yeah, and I would say the half MacGuffin, that if doing X would completely kill the plot, what about succeeding at X doing something that gives you a bonus when you finally do get to the cool, fun thing at the end. So you feel that you're moving toward it. You've had a victory, but, you know, it doesn't short circuit the plot. It just uh, gives you a thing that pays off during the plot. Fred Kish asks, Poikila Hellenistica, when? When I've finished writing it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we keep getting that question. The answer to anything that that, uh, we're cooking up that you would love to see is when it's ready. Mm -hmm. Lightning Lightning round. Robert Wolf asks, what out of print and hard to find RPG product most needs a new print run or to be made available in PDF? The revised version of Og that I did, the unearthed edition, is in rights limbo, and I would love to see that limbo unlimboed so that people can get it, and I'm often asked about it. <laughs> well, I would uh, be hard-pressed not to join that thing I wrote category with, I don't know, the rest of the suppressed transmissions. That would be fun to see somewhere. Lightning round! Kevin Nault asks, where should you start on Earth? Hometown and environs for familiarity, or somewhere unfamiliar for suspension of disbelief and pedantry? It very much depends on the campaign. I think that games that value the contrast between the real and the magical, or the real and the supernatural, so horror games or Wainscott fantasies, Unknown Armies, for example, those sorts of games really, really work well in a familiar hometown. Other parts of Earth exist solely because of their exotic charge, so... You know, don't play a samurai game in Chicago. Play it in a high-end era Japan. Don't play, you know, a game of swashbuckling in, you know, Tyler, Texas. Play it in 1630s Paris. Either the genre or the milieu has a native place, in which case that's the reason you wanted to play it, or you're existing to contrast something, in which case start in your hometown. I especially like doing the familiarity of your local area, particularly in horror games and so forth, because unlike Ken, I do like secondary worlds and to make up places. My question is, if I have to do a ton of research and provide a ton of exposition in order for us to play in this thing, why don't I shorten that process by making a cool place up? Lightning round! Taylor Harless asks, when we make first contact with an advanced intelligence, what should be on the menu for the first meal we serve them? Robin. Well, assuming that they have not been researching us beforehand, in which case they may have a request, which of course we should then satisfy. Honor, yeah. I would say a thing with a lot of flavors in it. So bibimbap uh, comes to mind since I live next to a Korean neighborhood uh, here in Toronto. But uh, something of that variety, like a paella or so forth, uh, have lots of stuff for him. Yeah, I would say something that maybe not all the flavors in one dish, but maybe a full complement. So something on the order of Coke au vin, a, a good French red, you know, crusty bread, some lovely uh, roasted vegetables as the side, some uh, escargots or something else. And then, you know, a nice uh, tart at the end or a, a sherbet, something like that. Just give them the whole spectrum. Lightning round. Leprion says, Ken, I own and love James Semple's music. Why is his credit always in the tune of the Simpsons theme? Well, Lepra One, first of all, thank you for paying me the compliment of believing that was a tune. <laughs> hey, you stole my banter. <laughs> I did steal your banter, but it's also the truth. The uh, basic reason is it seemed to fit. I did it once, then I was stuck doing it forever. If I wanted to make up an occult reason, I could say, because it's the Devil's Interval. Robin? Yes, I, I don't know how I would go about singing his credit to the tune of the Ashen Stars theme. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I think we would need an alien to do that. Lightning round! Monster Talk asks, this isn't important. Well, I mean, welcome to the show, Monster Talk. But often a trash truck shows up in the show, and I was curious whose city that belongs to, Robin. Right, so not literally a trash truck, but... For some reason, the street that I live on, uh, and of course you have to realize that this 
beautiful homespun handcrafted podcast is not recorded in uh, actual recording studio with soundproofing. Bathurst Street has suddenly gotten loud. So I don't know whether you are hearing different municipal trucks or regular trucks or the streetcar or, but just particularly this spring, I don't know if it's just the interval between winter when there's snow to absorb the sound and uh, later on in the summer when there's leaves on the trees to absorb the sound. Or it could also be that Toronto's traffic has been uh, heavily disrupted uh, in order to build new subways. So it might be that there is more traffic on Bathurst Street, but the vehicles you're hearing, I hear them too. Ken sometimes hears them while I try to stop talking as they go by. So I'm glad you think it's unimportant, and I hope everyone else can now unhear those sounds. Now that you pointed it out, Monster Talk. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. Lightning Round! Victor Polites asked, Is there a game mechanic you add to any game you run if it's not already present? I think that probably the game mechanic that I add is the preparedness mechanic. That is such a great time saver, a great shortener, a great emphasizer of player ingenuity as opposed to pedantic inventory taking that it uh, really... It moves any game along nicely. You can generally fake it with, you know, some sort of intellect roll or uh, or luck roll if you have to. But it, it just saves so much time. I love the preparedness mechanic. I've loved it since I read it in Esoterrorists a million years ago. And it's it's never leaving my holster. Robin? Surprisingly, mine is also a gumshoe one. And it's essential gumshoe one, which is you never have to roll to get information that you need to make the plot go forward or even just be fun. So sometimes I will still call for knowledge rolls. And in the case where I can think of a cost for failing the rolls, but mostly I just let people have at least the bare bit of information they need. And then there are other times when I let people roll when it doesn't matter because you don't want them to think that they spent all this stuff in their character sheet that isn't worth anything. But yeah, that stuff in your character sheet isn't worth anything. (laughs) (laughs) Rob Heinzo asks, what's the strongest or most interesting emotion you remember experiencing during a role-playing game? So I I would think of the end of our long-running Yellow King role-playing game thing when the horrible ending that had been teased was something that the players dutifully went and uh, uh, carried out was uh, uh, pretty intense. But there have been lots of great drama system moments as well, and often funnier ones involving people storming out of of rooms and and proving that they really are uh, fully who they are. And I'll name one more, uh, which is that a character who sometimes enjoys being completely at odds with everybody else and being a sort of truculent figure immediately in the very first episode had his arm broken by a swan, which (laughs) forced him to change his entire approach to his uh, character. And uh, that moment was delightful because it was like having all of his previous characters have their arm broken, which the rest of the participants all enjoyed. And it was enjoyable after that because it uh, led to some unexpected play. I would say that the sort of the general answer and the one that redounds and why I keep doing this is the sort of delighted surprise that I experience whenever the players come up with some beautiful synthesis 
and either they're all hitting, they're in the moment, they're vibing, or best yet, they've come up with a plan that makes total sense in game. It's not a, a gimme or a stretch, but I didn't see it coming. And that's what I really like is that sort of surprise and delight. And I can identify, for example, the time when my players were fighting a, uh, a semi-Soviet Batman and one of them dropped a space station on him and it made complete sense in game. And even I had to admit it was probably hard for Batman to survive that. It was a, a great moment, just a, a, everyone enjoying it, that sort of communal delight in something working. That's what I get out of a role-playing game when it's being done correctly and when it's being done to its full potential. I will also add deuce. We had some genuine creeping dread during some Call of Cthulhu campaigns, not least the scenario that we played on a houseboat in Grand Lake, Oklahoma. That turned out to be a great place to meet Deep Ones as it transpired. So good old creeping dread. Nothing wrong with it, but I play for the delighted surprise. Lightning round! Sean asks, how is Ken's recovery going from his shooting experience? Fine and dandy, Sean. Thank you for asking. My leg is back to full function. I just have a, a cool little divot. I uh, showed it off for the first time to strangers in Texas. I was wearing shorts, and one of the uh, Chupacabra Con attendees said, Hey, man, how's the leg? And I told him I was doing great, and he says, Can I see? I showed him the bullet wound, and the good thing about showing a bullet wound to a Texan is it's connoisseurship. They're like, yes. Yeah, everyone else then showed theirs, right? That was very nice. So, yeah, it's it, it's literally the best imaginable outcome. I just have a cool scar and a fun story. Nothing was taken. I uh, can wander around. And uh, during wet weather, I can pretend to predict the future. So, what what could be better? It's delightful. I still don't recommend it, but my recovery, 100 out of 100. Lightning round! Lepra One asks, if Robin were to write an introductory adventure for Swords of the Serpentine, like he did for 13th Age, what would the theme be? My players still talk about the mat from the Strangling Sea. So for those of you who have not read or played the Strangling Sea, it takes place essentially on a fantasy world equivalent of the Sargasso Sea. So you wind up taking an ocean journey out to the dungeon, which is a weed mat in the floating in the ocean. So the whole idea there is it's an introductory adventure to something fairly familiar, but it's one that does some sort of a reversal on what the sort of core currency of the game is. And since the 13th age is an F20 game, it's a weird version of the dungeon. For an introductory game for Swords of the Serpentine, I'm not sure if I would try to make it weird because you're not as familiar with Serpentine as you are with F20. So you're not ready with for something that is just completely offbeat. So I think I would, you know, again, ask myself a question, what's the core currency of this game? And, and that it's the city and it's the different political factions. And so I would, I think, literally have some sort of magic map that people would discover you had. And then the different power brokers would send their minions toward you to try and uh, get the map from you and, and swing a deal. And that would introduce all of the players to the much more complex moving parts of the Eversync city setting. Lightning round! Frederick Brownison asks, what musical event does Ken risk sneaking off in the time machine to view? Besides the standard answer, any Paganini concert, any Billie Holiday concert, maybe any Bowie concert, since I never saw Bowie when he was alive, uh, I think the answer has to be July 4th, 1976, when the Ramones hit Britain. It was uh, the Roundhouse in London. They played for a sold-out audience. It was an enormous show. The Stranglers were on the same bill. The temptation would be to go to Sheffield and watch The Clash and Sex Pistols. That would be The Clash's first show ever, opening for The Sex Pistols. But you can just stick around and see The Clash and The Sex Pistols when they come to see the Ramones the next night, July 5th, in Dingwall in Camden. So that would be also good fun. But July 4th, right there in part of us, Barbaricum, representing America, watching punk be set off like a bomb in England. How great would that be? Unmistakably cool. And yeah, maybe hang around the next day, meet Joe Strummer and the boys. And I, I don't know if I'm being invited to use the time machine. Sure, Robin, what the heck? But I would be uh, tempted by the famous jazz at Newport or 
possibly as a Toronto boy, I would pick a date where somebody interesting was playing in the 60s in Yorkville. So see uh, Neil Young with Joni Mitchell and, and Dylan there, if you pick the right night, uh, maybe even Harry Belafonte's hanging out with them, and then head down the Young Street Strip to its uh, music row to check Ronnie Hawkins and his backup band, which will later become the band. Yeah, if we're talking about vibes, I think it would be tough to avoid going to the Gate of Horn uh, in the early 1960s in Chicago. Not not so much because I want to see a folk concert, but because I want to see the Gate of Horn in the early 1960s in Chicago. Lightning round! Shane Cubis asks, Is there a note you scribbled down in the heat of the moment whose now impenetrable meaning haunts you? If so, what does it say? Robin? I, I think by its very nature. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's paradoxical. I don't, I, for that very reason, I no longer try to write down notes. Like, for example, when I'm sleeping and wake up and write something down, I've, I've done that. And it's just a scribble. And that's why you don't do it. It's a, a thing that haunts you. Uh, just the other week, while I was watching a movie that I wasn't going to pause because Valerie was there too and we're into the movie, I thought of a, thing I needed to add to the last chapter of Casilda's song. And when you finally get the book in however many, uh, you know, a year or more from now, you will note that that thing isn't in it. I uh, don't really write notes down, but I figured, it, uh, you know, Shane Kivas is a beloved Patreon backer. So I, while you were talking, I scribbled around in my desk and I found a whole page that I have no idea what I was talking about when I wrote it. But for example, it says JC geology student found a gun wished for chocolate. <laughs> Joshua Neolethotep, which by the way, I love Neolethotep blonde dwarfs, H A D L front for crime, Samuel Davies, zero level turnip farmer. I have no idea what I was doing, but I was apparently having a great time. Uh, maybe I'll remember, maybe whoever I was doing this will hear this show and say, you idiot. <laughs> Ian Carlson asks, it's the future. You've cribbed one of Shakespeare's villains into your latest adventure. What villain? What system? And what twist do you add to make it spicy? In terms of Shakespearean villains, the problem and the benefit with them is that they're all driven by the social arrangement, less so by the setting. So it's harder to begin with a, a Shakespearean villain as the bad guy. It's not like they're Darth Vader. They don't have a plan that heroic Hamlet has to, you know, stop. I suppose that in terms of villains with their own nefarious agenda, you could probably do a pretty fun Macbeth analog where the players are, you know, whoever their, their most beloved NPC is, the one that they're loyal to, the one that gave them their cool sword or hat has been murdered. And the guy who murdered him is taking his place and uh, he's got all manner of witches and whatnot. I think that might work, but the trouble, uh, not the trouble, the wonderful thing about Shakespeare plays is they're organic to the story, uh, the villains are, and it's not so much a, a Moriarty of crime that you have to uncover. It's, well, I have to kill that guy because he killed my dad, and that's part of the story. Well, I, I would steal the dynamic and not use the name or even necessarily any of the traits, and pick Iago, mm -hmm. because he's the false friend who gives you terrible advice, who leads <laughs> you to do something awful that you wish you hadn't have done. And so the voice of the seductive figure who seems to be on your side and in a more uh, sort of adventure genre context can like give you stuff and feed you information and lead you along and give you reasons to want to uh, follow him and then see what uh, bad advice you want to take. Because the thing I've learned about players is that the advice they're most likely to take is bad advice. Bad advice. So why not personify that? The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Lightning Round! Alex Osias asks, In your exposure to many RPGs, what are some of the more unusual dice resolution mechanics that you've encountered, Robin? I would say the most elegant, elaborate die mechanic would be the Earthdawn one, where the math is all worked out and it's cool and fun to play with. Because the drawback about weird die mechanics is often they are uh, weird and not elegant, and uh, that and I wouldn't say that Earth Dance is uh, that intuitive either, but it's more intuitive than, say, you know, you discovered that Luzaki designed a D32 and made a game around that. Yeah, I think that to combine unusual and elegant, as opposed to just unusual and weird, I feel like Dogs of the Vineyard is probably one of the best, where the size of the die increments by how f- potentially fatal to you the encounter is. And I, I love that reification of the drama in the tactile sense of holding dice that once you're in a gunfight you're at d12s and things can really get out of hand and i i very much appreciate that 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 so perfectly belongs in a western and it so perfectly belongs in dogs of the vineyard it's just a great joy uh to, to play and to mess with and it's again something that no one else has ever done really so i love that lightning round Snivgritz asks, I seem to recall it being hinted that on occasion, Time Incorporated might fake a historical person's death in order to recruit that person for research or other divisions. And I guess that raises a different question, which is not being asked, which is why don't you just pluck him from the time stream and put him back in? If so, which historical person has Ken received the most welcome assistance from either as a planning partner or fellow field agent. Well, uh, the reason you don't pluck them out of their life in uh, the middle is because then they come back and they've got all that, you know, all those memories of sneaking off to see Bowie concerts and whatever, and it messes with the time stream when you do that. You have to find people who die at the height of their powers, ideally, and if those powers are sneaking around as a commando, then you have to, you know, pluck some anonymous famous dead commando. For planning, though, that's when you can uh, uh, engage in the old death fakery and you can borrow, say, Admiral Afonso de Albuquerque, who is apparently the world's greatest fine strategic spots guy. Once you teach him to think in terms of timelines instead of the Indian Ocean, I, I feel like he, he'd be a dab hand at planning a time mission. Also, James Dean does really well. They send him on the uh, missions that require even more charm and not quite as much uh, vodka as yours. Right. Lightning Round! Jacob Borsma asks, how long before AI developments will allow fully automating the role of the GM, Robin? Substantially two and a half years, fully never. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that AI assistance for GMing is probably already happening. Making an AI that can think on their feet in all of the myriad cases where players get nuts, I'm not sure it can ever happen, or it's already happened because that's what people are playing and enjoying all manner of storytelling video games. And that's an AI that does the GM's job. So it, it happened, you know, 25 years ago, Jacob. Right. And an AI rules lawyer now. Right. <laughs> Lightning round. Jim asks, what's each of your current white whale games you'd love to try to get to the table, but just can't seem to manage it for whatever reason? I think that my whitest of whales is probably running the Great Pendragon campaign. The reason is not that my players wouldn't run Pendragon, it's that they wouldn't spend, you know, six years running Pendragon. My campaigns run long by uh, many standards, but I feel like saying, guess what, guys, we're going to do a century of gaming might cause a bit of backing away. I I feel like I could get them to run Pendragon, and in fact, that's one of the options, I think, for next game uh, in my Monday group, 
But uh, even I am not going to sit there and say we're going to begin with the crowning of Uther and we're going to end at the Battle of Camelon. Buckle in. Uh, that's not going to happen, though it would be a lovely thing to do. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I can't think either of something that I couldn't convince current players to do or couldn't recruit other players to do. So, and I, I'm often also the one who needs to switch up things back and forth. So, yeah, I'm not sure what that would be. I, I guess I'll find out when everybody says no to one of them. Right. Lightning round. Neil Barnes asks. The best vegan meals to cook if you're hosting a game night, Robin? Well, seasonally, and first of all, I don't cook for my <laughs> players, uh, but in some sort of arrangement where I'm being handsomely paid to provide both dinner and jamming, which I think is a bit much, at this time of year, it'd be uh, grilled vegetables. Uh, it's it's grilling season. Other times, as we've talked about on the show before, the number one way to trick vegetables into being delicious is a roast vegetable medley. And uh, therefore, also for the people at the table who aren't vegan, you can prepare on a separate bowl some grated Parmesan cheese that you've just grated so that the non-vegans can also enjoy. Yeah, I would say maybe the person who's hosting is not the person who's GMing. I mean, I play at other people's houses. I don't expect them to cook for me, but it, sometimes it happens. No one thinks hosting me with a vegan meal is maybe the way to go, but I would say that there is any number of terrific Indian dishes, any of the dolls, especially the ones that have got the, the peppery onion stuff on top, you can make a banger of a vegan meal with that. You don't have to put the cream in, although you should. Or uh, Sheila has a Brazilian black bean soup recipe that, again, if you're gaming in winter, as you say, seasonally, is amazing and does not necessarily need to be started with bacon, although I usually do. So I would say any of that uh, sort of doll bean spectrum with a hefty amount of spice and flavor is probably a pretty satisfying meal, especially once it gets uh, colder outside and you want something sort of like chili. Lightning round! Jim McCarthy asks, what is your take on Powered by the Apocalypse style of games? Any in particular you love? I love uh, the design of all of them. I especially, you know, admired Vincent's original reclaiming of the character class as the framework around which this whole game system ran. I don't run them myself, mostly because they have a fairly best case or best practices GMing method that is not my GMing method. I think the PBTA game that I love the most is probably Urban Shadows because it is classic, you know, sort of urban dark fantasy. It's a genre I like. It's a superb implementation of it. But I got to say, Monster Hearts is a terrific, terrific game. And I've had exactly the emotion that Avery Alder intended playing it uh, both times I've played it. There's another great one that uh, Sarah Richardson did called Velvet Glove, I believe, that's about 70s bad girls acting up. And it's an amazing, fun, liberatory thing. It's just about how well do you boil the setting down and then break it out into those character classes. And many of the PBTA designers do it really well. It's a fun game. It's just not my GMing style, so I don't necessarily uh, run it as, as much as I like it. Robin? My take would be it's really fascinating to see story game design thought, particularly its distrust of the GM, first of all, and more secondarily, its distrust of the players, filter back into more trad style play and then uh, look at what is in uh, trad that it is interested in and also create a structure that uh, continues to uh, take power away from uh, the participants. And as always, uh, when asked for a favorite game, it's I love whatever you love. Lightning round! Andrew M. Reichart asks, assuming one had the means and will, why not follow through with a series of carefully targeted time travel assassinations? Robin? Well, as people know, I also know something about Time Incorporated. It's the blood time simple syndrome that just as in, you know, Dashiell Hammett or a Coen Brothers movie or a 1960s French crime drama, once you bump one person off, it's like the old lady who swallowed the fly, that the time implications always turn into, oh, now I've got to bump this other person off. Oh, wait, no, it's created this other branch, or I got to bump this other person. So it's it's maximum chaos in the time stream. And as Ken has explained, he that's why he doesn't do it, except occasionally when he knows a guy who has some poison. But most of the time, you want to avoid the time blood simple syndrome. And that is why Time Incorporated wouldn't let me put a bomb under the police station where Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky were all hiding from the feds. 
But there we are. That's apparently why I'm not allowed to do it. Uh, the other reason is it's kind of more fun if you can manage it to, you know, get Mao a job as a theatrical impresario on Broadway and watch that ridiculous, dramatic, uh, self-involved personality do something that does not get 45 million people killed rather than just shooting him in the back of the head in the hills. As much fun as that, in fact, is. Lightning round. Andrew Miller asks, I've never cooked fish. How should I begin? More specifically, what should I ask for at the fish counter at the supermarket, and how should I prepare it? I think, first of all, you should ask for the kind of fish that you like. So if you like a fish that is uh, got a, a big flavor, a meatier fish, then you're going in the salmon direction. If you like a pale, more delicate fish, then you're going maybe even past halibut into um, uh, sole or something like that. By and large, if you've never cooked fish, you want to start with the more robust and tough fishes. So salmon, well, we're back to you and prepare it by uh, seasoning it with salt, pepper, and whatever you think might be good. Lemon peppers and often a good choice or garlic, just something really simple. And then just learn to cook it on the surface of your stove, fry it in the pan like you would a chicken thigh or a pork chop and see how you like that. You're going to wind up going back and forth the way you do with the steak. How rare do you like your salmon versus how well done? That's an individual person's choice. The well done choices are wrong. And once you can handle that, then you can move forward into more complex dishes and flavors. But just like a pork chop, just learn to cook it in a pan with exactly, uh, you know, a, a minimal amount of seasoning or rather a, a good amount of seasoning, but only one flavor and then build out from there. Robin? Yeah, I would just reiterate a uh, fish is not as daunting as you think it might be. It's actually probably pretty simple. And uh, although people are less familiar with it, it's probably easier to cook a piece of fish well than it is to cook a steak well. I would add that you know, there's no shame in starting with a fillet so you don't have to deal with any bones. Yep. And just cooking it in a pan and flipping it once is a, a great option. I will very often add mushrooms and uh, grape tomatoes and sometimes say some green beans in the pan with it. And especially for a fish that is oily, uh, like a catfish, that will create sort of a, a kind of an emulsion with the vegetables that sort of mixes with the fish that's quite lovely. And the other thing is just be careful not to overcook it, that you will think uh, looking at it that it needs to be fully cooked all the way through, uh, but uh, you want to stop short of that. You want to see a little bit of translucence in the very middle of, of the fish still, and then you will have a properly juicy fish that has still been at the temperature required to uh, kill uh, all the things that might conceivably be in that fish that you don't want to think about. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. Lightning Round! Wayne Rossi asks, in light of recent events, can you each pitch an RPG scenario where the Pinkertons are the antagonists? Robin? The history of the labor movement RPG? Set <laughs> <laughs> in the... Said in the Depression? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've done that West Virginia coal mining RPG a couple of times, and uh, both of those seem pretty strong. I suppose you could also, moving away from the labor movement, 
Uh, the other thing that the Pinkertons do is industrial security and, and things like that. So basically any sort of shadow running, whether in the future with orcs and magic or in the present with cool corporate espionage guys, the Pinkertons are one of the main providers of corporate security. So you've got to get past them. And I feel like to make it uh, more interesting than just guards A through Z, you have a, a head Pinkerton who notices the commonalities in all of your crimes and becomes your, you know, your inspector Javert, the guy that's chasing you down. And uh, that would uh, make them a proper antagonist instead of just mooks in the way. Not that there's a problem with Pinkerton mooks either. Right. And I guess a way to, to nerd trope my suggestion is to put it in space and you're members of a alien species who uh, have uh, traits particularly suited to say working in a gas giant and not dying. And the Pinkertons are the humans in the power suits who are uh, making sure that you're uh, doing your job and not rebelling. Extracting enough helium three. Yeah. Lightning round. Andrews Gabrielson asks, what is a type or style of movie game food or other form of entertainment that you don't enjoy, but wish you could. Wow. That is a big ask. I will say that I wish I could enjoy more of the French New Wave than I apparently can. Bits of it appeal to me. A lot of it doesn't. I feel like this is my fault, not necessarily the fault of all the French New Wave, although, Godard, I'm looking at you. So, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of examples of high culture that, for whatever reason, you know, post-Charlie Parker jazz, I just nope out of. So, I feel like you know, move along the uh, the exalted corner of something. There's probably a place where Ken has fallen off, and uh, I'd I'd be happier and probably a better person if I were up there still. But there we are, Robin. So there's types of things that I don't enjoy and don't feel the need to wish that I could. Yeah, right. <laughs> like classical organ music, like anything with a giant pipe organ. I'm mm -hmm. out on that. Or you know, a leader or art song out on that. Mm -hmm. But classical dance, like ballet, puts me to sleep, and uh, I wouldn't mind being able to enjoy that lightning round Derek McMullen asks best barbecue sauce Robin one that I cobble together myself from a variety of other sources including a whole bunch of processed sauces so mine has some ketchup some craft original barbecue sauce some Korean barbecue sauce Often, but not always, a, a sweetening or stickening agent, uh, molasses or uh, maple syrup, a little bit of sriracha, and then a combination of additional uh, spices, including uh, sometimes a little bit of tandoori paste or curry paste. That is not quite the uh, breadth of my answer, but the best barbecue sauce is the one that I bother to make myself. But when I'm in a hurry or I just want, you know, to get the you know ribs eaten and on the table... I find that there's nothing particularly wrong with absolutely standard bottled Kansas City style barbecue sauce and Sweet Baby Ray's is as good as any other. Lightning round! Jason Krause asks, if you could add one mechanic to the earliest game you built, what would it be? Oh, man. Uh, what is the earliest game that I built? I guess the earliest game that I built as opposed to wrote for is Star Trek, the old icon system. And I feel like that was a, a fairly complete not least because I had, you know, five really great designers helping me build it. But I feel like it really doesn't need an awful lot. I say maybe a passions mechanic just because those are great and they're also part of Star Trek. And it would have been fun to try integrating that sort of superb Pendragon character engineering into a show that is as character driven and character consumed as Star Trek. I guess that's my answer. Robin? My first game I built is Feng Shui and I already went back and fixed and, it. And added it. Thing yep. In Feng Shui 2, which is to remove the penalty for doing uh, cool stunts, which I can't believe was even made it through into the manuscript for uh, Feng Shui 1. Lightning round! Steve Dempsey asks, what's that one dish which you'll remember forever? Robin? That's always like a combination of the people and the circumstances. So, I, you know, I could cite, you know, the first time we went to uh, Gautier, uh, courtesy of Palgrain in in london but i would say the salt lick barbecue in texas outside of austin because uh it was uh not only a fabulous iteration of texas barbecue but sort of a crossing of the streams because uh, you were there ken and uh, so was uh, one of my nieces yeah it was a it was a lovely time and i will certainly remember that as well as you know 
that company and the salt lick. I think if we're talking about just the food, maybe the answer is the first time I had cassoulet, which was not even a particularly great cassoulet. It was at a, a French restaurant, and I think it was in Las Vegas even. So it wasn't a particularly great restaurant, but it was the first time I had cassoulet and that flavor combination knocked me off my feet. And I've been chasing cassoulet in one degree or another ever since. So I feel like, you know, when I actually get to Toulouse and eat proper cassoulet, that will, you know, exorcise the memory of the first cassoulet. But for now, I think I'm still chasing that, maybe not even that flavor, but that moment of amazement at that flavor. So that's my answer for now. Lightning round! Bart Malio asks, borrowing an Everway mechanic, how would you use tarot cards as shock cards in the Esoteris or Fear Itself? I didn't know we had shock cards in Esoteris or Fear Itself. First of all, I'm very excited by that. You're adding them according to the expression. Okay. So, first of all, you sort out your tarot cards. First question is, are we just using the Greater Arcana or are we using all 78? Get your interpretation of the tarot book handy. And I would say that Whenever something breaks, so anything that causes any sort of a shock, a conventional shock, like, you know, gunfire, murder, whatever, that's when you draw from the minor arcana and you look at that and you pick the worst outcome. So it might be 10 of swords upright is terrible, but if it's, you know, three of cups, maybe you have to reverse it. But the bad thing is the psychological consequence to you. And it's what's inside your head and you have to sort of play it out like you do with a shock card. And once you've exorcise that emotion in a scene or in in play the gm will let you turn the tarot card back in now if it's an outer dark thing that's when it's a major arcana and that's when things get really bad because those things haunt you and stick to you and you have to do a specific banishment exorcism cleansing right quest whatever to get rid of that card and of course just like in yellow king if you have three trumps showing then you have been subsumed into the outer dark and uh, consumed by them which uh, is a more dangerous version of, of both games, I think, but I think it uh, suits the the requirement. Robin? Uh, I would go a little more loosey-goosey. I would stick with just the Major Arcana, which all have themes and pictures and would eliminate the need to look for an interpretation in a book and then figure out how it relates to the fact that you're trapped in the basement of a hospital, right? There's mm-hmm. enough things to connect already, just having an image on a tarot card and what's happening in, in the game. And I would just say that the when you get your third card, that creates a narrative that explains exactly how it is that your mind is sucked into the outer dark and therefore uh, destroyed, even though your body might survive. Lightning round! Joshua Randall asks, if a Ready Player One style metaverse existed, how much time would you spend in it, Robin? As much as I do playing video games, which is to say none. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Should you? That is the answer. Would I? See my Twitter habit. So too much. Lightning round! Hector Trelane asks, which tabletop game that you've authored is your top choice to convert to a LARP and which celebrity is your top choice to GM it in full cosplay regalia? Well, I think that if I'm converting any tabletop game that I've done to a LARP, the easy and uh, simple answer is Vampire the Masquerade, which already is a lovely LARP. I would maybe say that it would be a little bit more fun and interesting to see Scholars of Night or or one of the sub-gumshoe games. Like You know what? I'm going to say Scholars of Night. Forget you, vampire. You've already got a LARP. Scholars of Night, everyone has to LARP as an Elizabethan poet, points off if you don't talk in blank verse. And uh, in that case, the celebrity that run it had better be a great Shakespearean actor. So let's make Sir Ian McKellen do it. He would hate it, which would add uh, extra fun to the whole Megillah. He can be John D. Robin? Right. So the, the underlying subtext, which I'm going to address uh, here, is uh, Hector's asking, what could you make the most money doing? And creatively, that happens to coincide with the fact that Emily Kerboss already did an amazing conversion of Drama System to LARP. And that means that you could hire the stars of uh, beloved cable dramas to host these events. And so the obvious first one to do now would be to get Brian Cox to do Succession. Mm -hmm. And you could keep changing that over time. Lightning round! Oren Gashuri asks, how can a diabolical GM best integrate themes from Kafka's The Trial into their TTRPG plotline without irritating their players, Robin? 
So the the crucial clause there is without irritating their players. And so I think that you would have to make this into a rescue mission where the players are psychonauts who are uh, dropped into the nightmare of someone who's trapped in the trial in the role of K. And your goal then is to uh, rescue this uh, protagonist who, of course, their subconscious believes they need to be eternally punished and is creating a, a labyrinth of persecution for them. And you have to fight this growing persecution verse in order to uh, bust them out and bring them back to the surface and out of their coma. Yeah, I think that it is impossible to legitimately integrate uh, the trial without irritating the players. Irritating the players is kind of the whole point of the trial. I would say that Robin's idea is the best one, but the other possible one is that if you were doing a uh, conspiracy paranoia type RPG that the trial might be some sort of heightened, maybe hallucinatory, maybe dream, maybe, uh, you know, the, the, the conspiracy has dosed you with some psychoactive drug and you're having a trip. And that when you enter the trial verse, it becomes a little more the trial, but with flavors of the prisoner so that you have a secret, you're trying to keep it but also you're being passed through this horrible bureaucracy that's chipping away at you and you have to make your roles to withstand it. And I feel like uh, making it a sort of an ordeal experience as opposed to this is your life now existential experience, the way that the actual novel is, might be the way to do it short of doing it Robin's cool way where you're entirely outside and you've been parachuted in as sort of the legal aid to K, which is, of course, more fun. Lightning round! Kevin Greenlee asks, how much of the motivation behind creating the Dracula dossier was getting to have a published book with you listed as a co-author with Bram Stoker? Surprisingly, not a main motivation. The main motivation was just that sort of idea that hit me that doing Dracula as the Vero edition with the three annotations and how do I make that work as a game campaign? And fortunately, Robin had solved that problem with the Armitage files. So I just had to sort of adapt that in. And then it was, you know, remarkably late in the process where I twigged to the fact, oh, right, I get to be a co-author of Dracula. And I feel like part of the reason it didn't twig as early as it might have is I was too busy saying, I get to be a co-author with Gareth. And working with Gareth Hanrahan, our beloved friend and superb collaborator on the project, was such an absolute joy that it really was surprisingly late that I realized, oh, I also get to be, you know, on the same author line as Bram Stoker, which is pretty cool. Right, because once Stoker handed in his bit, he wasn't collaborative after that. You no, know, he, he frankly, he did not carry his weight after turning in his, his data dump. He said, I've got other stuff to do. I've been, you know, dead for 80 years. He had a bunch of excuses. There we are. Lightning round! Ben Vincent asks, what are the indispensable game accessories at your table? For me, it's pretty sparse. It is, first of all, the copy of the rulebook, obviously, dice when needed, an iPad, uh, which is actually subbing for a laptop because I don't happen to own a laptop. So it is what I would use to look stuff up on the Internet or to play music cues or to communicate with people on Slack. And then there may be a special item related to uh, a particular game. So, for example, for Drama System, it turns out that this collection of about a dozen and a half plastic, realistic African naked mole rats, uh, which I bought at the zoo many, many years ago, that they are, you can easily hurl them across the room to other players because my players uh, don't sit close at a table. So somewhere where you have to hand out tokens, you can't just you know, give them a poker chip or a, uh, you know, a little glass bead or something and hope for them to possibly catch it. So a aerodynamically perfect game token happens to be a plastic uh, naked mole rat that you bought at the Metro Zoo 20 years ago. <laughs> well, when plastic naked mole rats make their way to the gaming hut, we'll know they've really arrived. Yeah, for me, it's a laptop or, you know, sometimes on my phone, if I need to check a, a detail or some data, dice, obviously, for games that include them, which is most of them. With some games, it's transpiring that index cards are super helpful for scrawling down, you know, monsters and bad guys in a tight format that in theory I can find again, although that is more of an aspiration than an actual fact. And the rules in some form or other, scratch paper in a notebook, pencil and pen, the same tech that we've been using since... 
you know, uh, 1979 in my case, with the exception of the laptop. Lightning round! And finally, Phil Masters asks, what is a standard loadout on Ken's time machine that he has to have on hand on every mission? I'm tempted to say my preparedness skill, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, maps, vodka. I I feel like you can get pretty far in the world with maps and vodka. You know, a little, a couple of few Krugerans or gold uh, Susterci, depending on the mission. Always helps to smooth a palm here and there. But, you know, just my beloved, glad countenance. Oh, and the uh, language implant that goes into the back of my head so I can speak ancient Aramaic or whatever it is. That's pretty handy. Robin? Well, and again, I you know, I don't want to bust you, but there's the two notebooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one containing your personal record of what you did and the other notebook containing what you're going to tell Time Incorporated you did. Yeah, there's the, there's the uh, mission report forms and there's the drafting book, as I like to call it, so that right. the mission report can be in the proper language, Robin. It's very important. And on that note, for another year, we'll once again finally say... Lightning Round! Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, premise acceptor on twitter he's at kenneth height and he's at robin d laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff